0: Turneth me over to the book of Ephesians. We're going to continue and end our core value series. We had a three-headed ministry team of Jared Green, Sean Clemens, and Stephen Law for the first week of our core values, dealing with evangelism on the first weekend in February. Secondly came Tim Say, my buddy from Maryland. He taught on lordship. Uh, Third week, we had... Keith Tower, the ex-NBA player that we planted down in Orlando, Florida some 15 years ago, um, 14 years ago he taught on discipleship and last week we had eh, without question in my mind the greatest leader on the planet, Steve Merle, who taught on leadership development and he uh, you, you don't know what what you got to listen to last week he doesn't have a whole lot of time for churches because he's so busy but the, the congregation that he established there in, uh, in the Philippines is 90,000 people. It's the largest church in the Philippines. And he released it some 20 years ago. Excuse me, 10 years ago when it was 20 years old. Um, and he gave it to the people around him who he had developed in leadership. And at that time, it was right at fifty five to 60,000. And the reason it got that big... It's not because of his great pulpit skills. It's because he trained leaders to go out and make disciples who then became leaders and went out and make disciples. Stunning. Greatest leader I've ever met in my life. Because as it is, is, you can tell a leader is a great leader, not just a good leader, by not just how many people are following him, but by how many people are following the people who are following him that's how you tell a great leader did his movement die with him or was he able to transfer it to another generation who then could take it to another level jesus was a great leader why because we're still going he said it's better that i go and everybody thought that was a really bad idea you're the greatest minister who's ever been why in the world do you think it's a good idea for you to leave Nobody does it like you. Nobody can say it like you. People are raised from the dead. You cast out devils that's never been done before. In the Old Testament, you're amazing. Why do you think it's a good idea for you to go? If I, if I don't go, you won't be what you need to be. You'll do greater things than I do if I leave. Everybody still thought it was a bad idea. Up till Good Friday, still thought it was a bad idea. And depressed that he had gone. And yet... Those 12, along with another 190, 110, I don't know, 108 people, changed the world. And here we are. Steve is a great leader. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 19. Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. The title of the message is Family on Bended Knees. Family strengthened, family defined and helped on bended knees. Paul is writing. And he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man, verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth and to know the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Lord, help us as we study your word. Four things on this passage about which i like to speak to you. One, that family is transdimensional in Paul's mind. Two, there's a fortification that needs to happen on the inside for us to understand what family is supposed to be spiritually. Three, we need a fresh impartation and placement intentionally of Jesus in our lives. We need a refresher on that where is he to sit on our on the on the, the the place of our souls. And then fourthly, what it means to be firmly rooted and how that's going to help us understand what it means to be family. Paul is writing to a group of people that are really struggling ...with the idea of how to incorporate Jew and Gentile. Because there are Jews and Gentiles in the church. Gentiles are people who have no Jewish natural heritage. That would be most of us. Nobody who came, or everybody who did not come from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jews are those who call their, their great, 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 great to the nth degree grandfather Jacob. And they are the ones through whom we have benefited. All the prophets all the kings, all the stories in the Old Testament, that's their history. And we've been adopted, we've been grafted in, and we've taken their history as our spiritual heritage. As a result, we understand a little bit about what it means to make our, our whole soul bend toward what is best in Scripture so that we can obey God. But remember, there was no New Testament when Paul was writing He was just writing letters, and so nobody could refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. The doctrine that was most important to their progress was being presented by Paul. He was the first one who had it. And so this church that was gathering, being made of Jew and Gentile with different backgrounds and different cultures, now the Jewish people were having to accept folks that they used to consider enemies, and the Gentiles were having to come into a people that they thought excluded them intentionally. The fences were high. Fences were high. And the cultural difference was enormous. Just think about what it meant to do a potluck dinner in church. Remember, Jewish people were kosher. They had dietary restrictions. They could only eat the animals that had chewed the cud, could chew the cud and divide the hoof. So there was a cow, there was a sheep, there was a goat, there was a deer. But you couldn't eat a rabbit couldn't eat a bear, couldn't eat a pig, because the pig, even though it chewed the cud, didn't divide, excuse me, it divided the hook, but it didn't chew the cud. And the rabbit chewed the cud, but didn't divide the hoof. So there were things you couldn't eat in the natural. They were considered unclean. It doesn't mean they are unclean for us spiritually today. It just meant that God was trying to lay out a standard of what the difference was between doing right in every area of your life and doing less than But the Gentiles didn't have these rules. And so what what happens if they show up with a couple of racks of ribs? What are the Jews going to do? I mean, the last thing they want to do is offend somebody with their gift. But they will offend somebody with their gift because they don't want to disobey God. And they don't want to bring uncleanliness, as they saw it, into their church. So the Jews had an idea about how to be. They didn't think, I don't think. At least to a church at Ephesus, that somehow the the eating of unclean things would make them spiritually unclean. But these were questions that were going through their minds that needed to be answered. And then the Gentiles were trying to figure out, well, do we have to adopt all the dietary restrictions that the Jews did now that we're saved? I don't get it. And that was just a little problem. The entire chapter. Of, of ephesians in chapter 2 deals with the idea of what it meant for god to break down the dividing wall between these two disparate people and make them into one and may i say that if you want to be one with someone who is not like, not like you it's going to take a supernatural breakdown of the walls you're going to have to figure out how in god to bring his power in beyond your intellect and skill set relationships are hard they are not easy Primarily, because you're not good at them. You just don't have everything you need to make them work. Why? Because you got you're used to too much of Adam, beginning to direct your actions and words and you haven't submitted yourself enough to Christ to know how to fix a relationship that seems unfixable because that person will not repent of the thing you think is most important for them to repent of in order to be right with you. And there you are pointing your finger saying, if you would just get right, this would be right. But God is saying, well, if you would get right, this would be right. We are, we are terrible at relationships, evidenced by the fact that Jesus had to coin, adapt, morph all the Old Testament priorities and make a new commandment for the disciples. It's not a new commandment like nobody ever thought of it. It's just something that he took from this and took from that and, took, and then put it together to encapsulate what it looks like to have your relationship with God translate to your relationship with people. And he thought, I've got I to help these disciples figure out What's most important? And so in John 13, he says this, a new commandment I give to you. Love each other just like I loved you. Why? Because they would love each other different. They'd love each other to a point and then say, I'm a bounce. I'm done. You crossed the line. we through. I love you from a distance from now on when these disciples didn't get anything that Jesus said, hardly anything did they get and yet he continued to reach out to them and call them closer even though they offended him regularly and didn't understand most of what he was saying and even when he was trying to do right, they were telling him he was doing wrong the chief priests are going to take the son of man and they're going to beat him real bad, they'll put him on a cross and he's going to die and he's going to rise on the third day Peter said, no they're not may it never be And Jesus is saying, dude, I'm trying to help you. This is for your benefit so you aren't surprised when it happens. It's going to be good, I promise you. I know it sounds bad, but it's going to be good. And you you think that it's important for me to hang around here because you gave up everything to be with me. Well, I'm going to reward you in ways like you never thought possible. And so you don't have the mind that I have about what it looks like on the other side of this thing. But I'm trying to help you. So all of that was this, get behind me, Satan. The disciples didn't get anything, and Jesus continued to call them close. Love each other, just like I loved you. It's hard to do relationships well. And this is why when we look at people who've been married 50 years, we go, oh. man, that's incredible. Woo! And many times, and I'm, I'm glad for anybody who endures, but many times it's just a celebration of endurance. It's not that they've grown. They just didn't want to stop. Divorce was a worse option. And so they just pressed through. And I'm happy about it. Better that than the other. But what about growing through rather than just going through? Becoming something in the process rather than just enduring somebody else's bad attitudes or trying to make it through simply because you, you, you don't know what else to do? There are... There are skills that can be developed, but there is the intentional insertion of the Spirit of God into the equation that Paul is trying to to bring to bear for all the people who are in Ephesus. And so this is the process through which he's going. And he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. The reason is everything he stated before, because I have given you the best information I know how to give you. I've taught you as well as anybody can. In fact, God has given me this stewardship. It was hidden from all the ages, but now it's been revealed, it says in Ephesians 3, 8 through 11, been revealed to, to me. And it's, it's this mystery of, 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 the, of the, the, the manifold wisdom of God being made, now, not, not, not made, being made now known through the church. And I want you to know that he's given this wisdom to me so that I can benefit you to let you know what the architecture looks like for church building. And the word manifold is the word polypoikolos in Greek, which means many-colored. Many that God has given me the wisdom to be able to bring Jew and Gentile together so that the many-colored wisdom of God can be made known to the principalities and powers through the church. This is one of the reasons why God has scripted me to build in a certain way and I can't do it any other. I see this, and it's it's not something that everybody has to uphold, but I can't do any other. I've got to build with people who don't look like me. Because somehow the wisdom of God is shared by our relationship that has traversed through difficulty, different backgrounds, different experiences. No, we don't have the same expectations about anything. But we work through it together to produce something that never would have been produced if I just stuck with folk that like ham, hock, and greens. (laughs) Something else happens. And you all are the beneficiaries in that you walk in and you see... What's this? White folk? Like and black folk? And they work together. I mean, they've been together for like decades. And we got an Asian congregation, Korean congregation up, upstairs, meeting right now. We got a Latino congregation. And the only reason they're not in here is because they're speaking in their language. But those pastors are on our staff. You look at our, you look at our I mean, you look at our church, you look at our website, you think, boy, that's different. It says something different and that's intentional many colored wisdom of God to every power that is every other powers that be it works in the kingdom here it may not work where you are but we got answers for you we got answers for you we're skilled at trying to figure out how to make it work and it's not because we are so smart it's because we've intentionally inserted the spirit of God into our equation that allows us to be different than most Paul says, I've given you and trained you the best I know how. I've given you the best information I got. But it's not enough to be informed. Therefore, I must pray. I bow my knees before the Father. From whom the whole family, all the family, every, the entire family, in heaven and earth derives its name. Now, I don't think Paul is talking about the family that is the human race. I think he's talking about the family that derives its name from God. And we are called by his name. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, speaking reference in reference to the Israelites in the Old Testament, but now we can translate that to the new in that we are called by his name as well. I think he's talking about the people of God, not just the entire family of humanity. Because, he says, in heaven and on earth. And so there is a family that we're connected to that's already gone to glory. We're with them. We just aren't with them. They're watching. They're cheering us on. They're like the the folks, the fans in the stadium as we are the players in the game. And so we're tied to them. And God has called us family. We aren't just congregations. We're family. He's our daddy. And therefore we must act well as brothers and sisters. He says, I bow my knee before the Father because there's not enough good information. There's not not as many classes as I'd like. That can help you beyond where you need to go. Because information will not fix this. It has to be a revelation and it's got to be an intentional insertion of the Spirit of God. I bow my knees because there's some stuff I can't do. Only God can do this for you. I bow my knees before the Father from whom the entire family in heaven and earth derives His name. That He would grant you. God wants to give you a grant. And that grant is according to the riches of His glory. It's not, it's not a grant that lacks anything. And Paul is trying to make, make sure the Ephesians understand that which God has given you in order to maintain and preserve and grow the family that he has created has no lack in it. And so when you come to the end of what you believe is possible with your relationships that are difficult, remember there's always more supply to fix. According to the riches of his glory. Riches of his glory. And there's nobody who has more glory than God. None. As evidenced by what Jesus did, and it said Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father, nobody has the esteem that Jesus has in all of creation. He was God, never gave that up when he came to be man, but in his humanity, he had to traverse through some stuff that allowed him to have more glory than anybody else. And why? Because glory is really... It it really comes upon a person depending on the the degree of the struggle. So the Patriots won the Super Bowl. (laughs) But if they had beat Freedom Eagle High School, right down here in South Riding, the, the Eagles, if they beat them for the Super Bowl, how much glory would be on them? you supposed to do. You shouldn't have been playing now. That's not even fair. You don't get any credit for that. So it has to be a struggle for 16 games and then a bunch of playoff games with a bunch of peers who have equal athletes if not better. Equal coaching if not better in order for glory to be revealed. It can't just be a game you put Super Bowl on and have an inequity in the strategies, talent and ability. Jesus came down and it wasn't even home field advantage he was, playing, he, was, he was playing an away game because the enemy had control of the planet and he was tempted in every way just like us. Yet never lost not a game, not a down he beat him like a drum every day though all of humanity had lost every And for 33 years, he beat him like a drum, the devil. Just beat the devil like a drum. Until the devil thought he had him at the cross and I finally wiped him out until the third day. Leveraged all of the enemy's strength against him and rose up and rose victorious for us. Nobody has more glory. Nobody has more glory. And out of that place of victory and glory he wants to distribute it for you. It's available. It's not. You can't use the excuse that God doesn't have enough power to fix your problem. He's trying to give it to you out of the riches of his glory. To strengthen you with power in the spirit, through his spirit in the inner man. God wants to give you power on the inside so that you can traverse through difficulty relationally. If you come to an impasse, that's simply an indication that you are Done. I'm not saying you're done with the relationship. You are done trying to tap your own strength. You're finished. It's over. But now when you get to the end of yourself, that's the beginning of God. Amen. Now that you have realized how far you can go and you can't go any further. You got my last nerve. You got on my last I'm through with you. That's the beginning of where you get to realize, OK, God, you can start. You can start. I can't do it anymore. And now you begin to tap into the riches of his glory that strengthens you for something else other than your own ability to try to fix this. Are you with me? And when you begin to tap into that and the spirit of God empowers you, then there are very few relational struggles that can't be fixed. It does take two to tango. And so not everyone can be fixed. It's your responsibility. As far as it is possible with you, Paul says in Romans 14, as far as it is possible with you, be at peace with all men. So it's our responsibility to make sure that there is nothing that that person out there can accuse me of legitimately, whereby I have done wrong and I haven't repented. I need to be at peace with them. But if they don't respond to me the way they're supposed to, I can't fix that. But there are very few relationships where that's the case. Most of the time when somebody really repents, when you really apologize, or when you become the bigger person and realize this argument is not worth losing the relationship, Even though you might be right and they might be wrong, will your rightness win? When I say that, you might win the argument, but will you lose in the process? When you win, do you lose? Even though I'm right, you're wrong, I'm I'm the victor. And then they walk away from you thinking, I don't want nothing to do with you. Well, enjoy your victory. Because you just lost a friend. It better be a really sweet victory. Sometimes you've got to humble yourself and say, I'd rather be reconciled than right. I'd rather be reconciled than right. And reconciliation says this. Can you imagine if God had the same attitude that I just said most of us have when we're trying to figure out how we can fix an argument that we know we're right in? If God said, I'm right, you're wrong. And he, he's right. He is all right. There ain't nothing wrong with God. He is all right. I'm right, you're wrong. So there. He said, I'm right. But, I, but you don't win if I'm right. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to take on your wrong. I'm going to pay the penalty for your wrong. I'm going to die for your wrong. I'm going to give my my life as a benefit for your wrong. I'd rather be reconciled than all right, because if I'm all right, I lose you, and I love you. Relationships take a lot of work, but it takes supernatural inspiration to make them work. Paul says, I'm praying that God fills you with power so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith fortified from the inside, and then a fresh placement of where we put Christ in our lives. Most Christians do this. They say, I want Jesus. I need him to forgive me of my sin. Yes, I want him to heal me and restore me and put me on the right path. That's great. And so what we do is we take the house that we've been living in for a long time that really is condemned. We've shown that that we aren't very good at construction, that our lives are really a mess, even when we put our best effort forward. And so, but, but, but we're comfortable with it because it's all we've known, even though we're not happy with the results. So when we get right with God, what we're doing is we're many times saying, God, I just want you to build an annex to my home. I'll give you a wing. And I'll go to that wing once a month. If I'm really inspired every week, and I'll give you worship and praise. I might even go to small group. I might even read my Bible, but it's a wing over here. It's my spiritual life that really has no impact on my career. That really has no impact on my marriage. That really has no impact on my rearing. That really has no impact on my ambitions and my dreams. I've got that set. I know exactly where I want to be, when I want to get there. And if you could just put your seal of approval on my plan, we're good. That's the way most people treat life. They treat God like that. Paul says, when the Spirit of God comes into your life with strength, he empowers you first to place Christ in the right spot. Now, when he says that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, he's not talking about people that need to get right with God who aren't right with God, meaning they're not saved. He's saying some of you have done what I just said, place Christ in the wrong spot, that he needs to be at the center of your life by faith, that everything you do needs to be driven through him. All decisions need to be made with his consultation and he has the final word. There is no aspect of your life that he doesn't want to be involved with and lead. And so take a back seat. Let the Spirit of God begin the process of telling you how important it is to let Jesus be Lord of everything, including your relationships. You can't just say who you want to leave. I can't tell you how many times Now, I probably haven't done it as many times as I should, but I can't tell you how many times I have chosen to be wronged in order to get the relationship right. Chosen to be confused as being misunderstood in order to get the relationship right. And you say, well, you're building it on a strange foundation. I'm just taking the higher principles and concentrating on them rather than trying to prove a point. Some stuff just isn't worth it. And then what you do is you trust God to say, Lord, vindicate. If there's a point at which I need to be proven as being right, you can do that. If it's not important, then don't bother. I'm good. I don't mind being confused with being wrong. I'm good. And please remember, it's said of Jesus, he was counted among the criminals. When he went to the cross, everybody accused him of wrongdoing. And he did not open his mouth. He didn't try to defend himself at all. He says he was like a lamb led to slaughter. He did not cry out. And everything within us wants to say how right we are, and we did not. And you need to listen to me, and you need to fix this. Not one. And he fully identified with you and me in our sin and our punishment. And we have, and we're talking about all the sin and punishment of humanity. And we have a problem with being confused as not being as right as we want to be with one or two situations. This is what the Spirit of God allows you to do, is be something that you're not in the midst of difficulty so that you can become what you need to become. And there's something we all are are supposed to grow into so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith right there in the center, right on the throne of your heart, not an ancillary place, core, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love, stuck in love, rooted and grounded. That your roots have gone deep, and there's very little way of ever pulling you out. And you are rooted and grounded in love, not just truth. We all need to love truth, but if you don't have love with truth, you come off as arrogant. You come off as, 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 as somebody who is superior to everybody else because you're smarter and you can bring a solution that, that requires your intellect and they don't know, they don't understand, but you know and your knowing actually causes a division because you're not incorporating love with your knowledge. Paul says, if I don't have love and I have all wisdom and understanding, I ain't nothing but a clanging gong And a loud symbol. Rooted and grounded in love. In love. Let me explain it the way he says it. When we are firmly rooted and grounded in love, we get to know stuff that we don't know otherwise. What is the height, the depth, the width and the breadth And to know the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. That we might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now you talk about superlatives. Paul used about all he could in this statement. But he says if we are rooted and grounded in love. We get the privilege of understanding what it means. to, to To understand what other people are thinking about the situation. Because we are deferring to how they are living. And we are deferring to what they think. Rooted and grounded in love he says it like this. So that we can, together with all the saints, come to this place of understanding what it's a, the, the, <laughs> the breath, the length, the height, and the depth. It's not enough just for me to get it. It's, it's, it's important for all of us to get it. Why do we do Sunday morning like we do it? It's not to become smarter, it's to become better. We are coming up to a new level every time somebody takes his pulpit, coming up to a new level of understanding what it means to love God well. So we can love people well. What is the breadth of that? What is the length of that? What is the height of that? What is the depth of that? And when you get rooted and grounded in love, all you want to know is how can I filter that, all the information I've got, the offense, the praise, whatever it might be, through the channel of love. And when you do that, something happens on the inside where Paul says, you get, a, you get an understanding of love that surpasses all knowledge. What does that mean? How do you know something that surpasses what you know? How, what does that mean? Well, I think it means this. You can intellectually know something. But if it doesn't drop 18 inches from your head to your heart, you don't really have it. And when you think about love, love... Biblically expands the idea of knowledge, because the God kind of love doesn't make any sense. The word is "agape in the Greek. It means "unconditional. Love. woman came to her husband. They'd been married six months, and they were going through some difficulty. She said, why do you love me? Maybe he wasn't treating her as well, and she felt like there needed to be some explanation as to why he wanted to be with her anyway. And when she asked that question, the guy wanted to feign a seizure, (laughs) just fall on the ground and, and act like a fool, because he figured this was a trick question. Why do you love me? Uh, okay. If I say you're pretty, you'll say, Well, what about when I'm not pretty? So that won't work. I mean, uh, you cook real good, that won't work because sometimes you, you okay, uh, clean. Uh, I, why do I, why do I, I'm going to be in trouble any way I go on this. There's no way I, there's no way. Women, ladies, we aren't that smart. We just aren't that smart, I'm telling you. But he heard a sermon. He heard a sermon. And he reached down to the depth of his, his memory and said, I love you. I love you for no good reason at all. Now, that doesn't sound very romantic. And she was looking for something different. I don't even know if she knew what she was looking for. But think about what he said because he had heard a sermon. Love doesn't make any sense because if it makes sense, it usually has a two plus two equals four. I love you because you, but when you stop, then I'd have to stop loving you. So I know it doesn't sound very romantic, but I love you for no good reason at all. I just decide to. It doesn't make any sense. You can't do anything to ever stop me loving you. It makes no sense. It goes beyond the bounds of understanding. They treated you like this. They did that to you. They hurt you. They backstabbed you. You have no idea what they're trolling about on the internet with you. They are trashing your name. Everybody would say, I'm done with them. Love makes no sense. I love them anyway. (laughs) And when when you get an understanding of what the God kind of love is, you get this. We have seven children, my wife and I. And number six was great. Just great. Brookie came out, we were happy. It was our first born girl in our house. It was just wonderful. And then number seven was a real surprise. <laughs> we, we weren't expecting number seven, but we were happy. But when number seven came, I didn't have to find more love because I had already used it up on the six. It just happened. There are no boundaries to it. And these people that you love, these little human beings, they will never measure up to anything you hope. They'll take all your money, spend all your money, all your money, they'll get poor grades, they'll disappoint you, and you know in the end what you'll say? I'm so proud of you, (laughs) you were great, you were great. It makes no sense, it makes no sense. Love makes when you, when you have the God kind of love, it makes no sense. If your love makes sense, I doubt whether it's God's. It doesn't have the boundaries that we would normally put on what makes sense. That's why a mama, though her child might be a horrible criminal, I'm serious, in jail, three times felon, a mama will never stop loving. Never. It makes no sense, except she decides to. And she's never taken it back. That's how we understand love. That surpasses this. All intellect. It's down here. And it's beyond the ability for our brains to be able to wrap every bit of our understanding around it. But we know it to be true that love has no bounds, and it always endures. And Paul thought it was the greatest gift we could be given by God by saying this. You know that passage over in Corinthians thirteen, first Corinthians thirteen, where it said, "Love is kind and patient." And they use it all at weddings, you know. It does not remember wrongdoing, and <laughs> I'm not being cynical. I'm not. I'm not. I, I, I just do a lot of weddings. But then you get to, there are three things that remain, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Now, I need a lot of faith, and I need a lot of hope every day just to keep me encouraged, to make me see stuff that I don't, don't see because I'm looking at the natural too much. And I need, I need the eyes of faith to believe that what I'm seeing is not defining all of my reality and that God's doing beyond that, which is an impediment to me right now. I just can't see it. I need faith every day. And I need hope that things can actually be different, that it's a precursor to my faith. I need them regularly. But the beauty is this, that I, it, I'm going to live about 70 to 90, someplace in there, and then I'll close my eyes. and I'll go to glory. And the 70 to 90 that I lived here hopefully will be filled with testimonies that that come from my hope that generated faith to see things overcome. But when I get to glory, will I need any hope? Why? Because everything for which I've hoped, I'm realizing. Will I need any faith? No, because everything that I've tried to believe for, I'm seeing with my eyes. But love will never stop. Our love forever. And it will continue to grow. Love is hard to put in our brains. But when it's down in our hearts, it surpasses knowledge. And that's the way we need to be with people. How God has been with us. He's made us in his image so that we have this capacity to love without boundaries. Now, that doesn't mean we can care for without boundaries. Everybody has their limit of what they can do, but nobody has a limit of how they can love. And as a result, he said, I put it on the inside of you. I loved you like this. You love them like this. And love does its best work when it's not reciprocated. So when you have an opportunity to be really deeply offended and verbally slap somebody who just verbally slapped you, (laughs) just remember, love does its best work when it's not reciprocated. Let's pray. God, I'm asking for your goodness and grace, please, to empower us to be the kind of people who can love like you love so we can represent family on the planet.